BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with Jenny Jackson. She is the talk of the town with her debut novel, Pineapple Street which one review describes as riveting, timely, hugely entertaining, and brimming with truth. The book is getting rave reviews everywhere. And though this is her debut novel, she's not new to publishing. She, for years, has been a highly respected editor and bringing you many of the books you love. Among her authors are Emily St. John Mendel, the author of Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel, Chris Bojalian, formerly on this show just a a couple months ago, and the author of The Flight Attendant and Lioness and, and many others, and Kevin Kwan, author of Crazy Rich Asians. We're thrilled to have Jenny with us today. Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, as we get settled in here, of course, we'll, we'll get our drinks poured. And I, I love your choice today, tequila soda. Yes, a classic. So I, I thought I was being fancy by specifying my Casamigos and soda, but my friends all make fun of me because I really will drink tequila with almost anything. And so I have a really good friend who's like an amazing mixologist. And he comes over and he makes, you know, simple syrup from scratch. And he makes these incredible, deadly margaritas. And and yet when I'm left to my own devices, I will literally just mix tequila and a LaCroix. Like te- just like whatever is lying around. I'm like, that seems good. And he comes over and he's like, this is gross. Stop it. Or then, I don't know if you've ever had um, Recess, those canned CBD drinks. No. Well, I find they're, you know, I mean, it's it's CBD. It's not, you know, hugely potent. But it's it makes that blend of tequila and CBD very just like a relaxing cocktail. That sounds kind of nice. Yeah, it is. That. But I don't, I don't think anybody would say it's like the, the delicious cocktail. Right. Like, so we're going, this is high end for me here. Well, I tequila. So this is good year round, but it's like my summer staple in particular. And I have, I would say, I have one or two drinks Thank fairly you. often. I put lime kind of around the rim there. So cheers, Next level. Great to see you. Cheers. Thank you. I have one or two drinks pretty frequently, but more than two, rarely. And if mm-hmm. I do, good tequila is a good way to go. It seems a little easier on the hangover. Yes, definitely. I feel better the next day. I think 
my husband and I have decided that uh, more than two glasses of wine is actually the worst thing to do in terms of a hangover. I don't know why. We feel just wretched if we have more than two glasses of wine. I, wine wine can catch up with me, too. I'll have one cocktail, one glass of wine, and I know that if I go beyond that, I, I'm feeling it the next day. Yep. Moderation. Exactly. We're grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> We've got little kids to deal with. That's true. So you come from, I've been doing some reading, I'm doing my homework, and uh, of course, love the book. But before we get into that, um, I know you come from a family of readers. So I read that you and your brother and your mom and your dad would sit around the dinner table with your noses, all four of you, noses in a book. Yes. And this is something that my husband found so deeply weird when he joined our family. Because in our family, it's we don't at dinner time we don't read. But at breakfast and at lunch, it's completely appropriate to eat while you're just reading a book. And he would sit down and be like, So how's everybody's day going? And we're all like, shh. <laughs> he just thought we were so bizarre. And then I remember another time getting made fun of in the airport because we're, you know, our flight had been canceled. So we were like waiting in line to get rebooked on something. And each of us were just standing there lost in our own book. And everyone was like, I mean, it kind of works. That's how your family like doesn't murder each other when you're traveling. If you're all mm-hmm. just like, yeah, I'm going to go into my own private headspace right yeah. now and just get lost in a book. It is great. And, and I was just talking, I think Brad Thor was on the other day, and we were talking about that fact that it's not its not so much that you read to your kids, it's that your kids see you reading, and then they start reading. It's, that's sort of more the way it works. So it sounds like that was certainly the way in your family. Yes, and it's really exciting now because my daughter, who's a second grader, has just, within the past couple months, started wanting to read by herself to herself. And I mean, the, she likes those dog man books, you oh, know, yeah, the yeah. like the the more potty humor, the better. But she um she isn't ready to be done with like family bedtime stories. And so I'll read a book to her little brother and she'll sit in the bed with us reading her own book. So this is like the baby step to becoming an independent reader. But I love it. it that is so fun to see our kids. We have uh, all three of them went through the phase of diary of a wimpy kid. Oh, we have that right now. Uh, yeah, it's great. And I so I I first started reading, I'm like, this guy is kind of weird and crass, but then my kids loved it, and that's all it took. They actually picked up the book, sat down for a half an hour or whatever by themselves and read, and then, of course, they sort of, as they got older, launched into the other things, but that was the stepping stone. Yeah, you have to meet them where they are. It's so funny because my dad is um, a really, really literary guy. I mean, he he taught um, English at Boston University, and he, uh, like, reads Proust for fun, like, you know, sitting on the porch with just like some Balzac. Um, But when I was a kid, he bought me um, the Babysitter's Club books. And I remember just falling in love with them. And he was like this pipeline for me, bringing me, you know, books that, no, he didn't think that like these books about like babysitters or girls with horses or whatever were like peak primo, you know, literature, but I loved them and they got me hooked. And so he was just kind of saying like, all right, I know, I know what's going to get you into this. And it's the same with Wimpy Kid and Dogman and all that. You just get the, get the muscles going. Yeah. So you went to Williams College and then uh, Columbia Publishing Course. Can you tell listeners, what is Columbia Publishing Course? Yeah. So back in the day, it used to be actually called the Radcliffe Publishing Course. And then the year before I took it, so I took it in 2002. Um, So in 2001, they moved from Boston to New York because 
they just a big part of the program is having publishing professionals come in and deliver lectures to the students. And they were like, we could save a lot of money if we didn't have to send all these people up to Boston and put them up in a hotel. So it moved to Columbia. And it's basically this six-week intensive course, Soup to Nuts Publishing, because I hadn't really had internships. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't have any friends who worked in publishing. And so it's a way to learn everything like how, what are sub rights and how how what is a profit and loss statement and how do agents interact with writers and it just meant that day 1 when i walked into my first job i was like very clueless but i wasn't totally lost yeah, yeah. If, if like a if a high school senior for example came up to you for advice and their goal was to become a writer to become a novelist in particular would you recommend that this high school senior take the job as an editorial assistant and just get in the book world or not? Again, if the goal is to to be a novelist. I would say yes, take the job in publishing. I would say it might be slightly more strategic to take a job as a publicity assistant, as a marketing assistant, as a sub rights assistant, just because um, the volume of reading isn't quite so intense in those jobs, but you're still seeing the whole inside of the industry. You're seeing Mm -hmm. what's working. You're seeing what people respond to. You're seeing what's done to death. You know what the trends are. I think editorial assistant is tough because there is this, I mean, the common wisdom on it, which is a little true, is that if you're desperate to be a writer, then you can end up feeling like always the bridesmaid, never the bride, you know? Um, I, I didn't feel that way, but I could see it. So, But I would never say don't work in publishing if you want to be a writer. Because also, like, I've made the best friends of my life in publishing, and it's just connected me to a million interesting people. So mm-hmm. it's a great thing and to do. And at least do. you're you're sort of in your passion zone if you're not actively publishing work, I guess. So it, it's a, so you would say that is, that is a benefit. I mean, I'm sure it's still a long shot, no matter where you are, to break through to where you've broken through. But that that could be a good a good move. Yeah, I mean I feel like the the number one advice I give to anyone who wants to be a, a writer is to read and I I always say, you know, whether actually this is for writers and for publishing executives that you should read widely, you know, don't just read literary fiction, don't just read thrillers, read the bestseller list, read the award winners, try mm-hmm. and figure out what the different sections of the market are and then I think the books you find yourself gravitating towards the most will often be the kind of book that you'll end up writing yourself. Yeah. Um, but the more you know and the more you've studied, the better you're going to be at it. Yeah. Would you say today – I mean you, you've seen writers come from unknown to breakthrough from the side of your, your editing position. And, and now you've, you've published your book as well. Do you think it's harder today to break through as a new writer writing fiction than it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago? You know, I think actually it's probably harder to break through now as a mid-list writer than it is as a debut writer. I think we have gotten to this funny place in publishing where, um, you know, when I first started out 20 years ago, you would get a novel submitted by the agent and the agent in their letter, you know, and this is all on paper, this wasn't email, the agent in the letter would say, and -and so-and-so's previous book was a big success where they printed 40,000 copies. And you would just have to say like, wow, 40 is solid. And then 
um, they uh, they started compiling sales figures digitally. There's this system called BookScan that we all have subscriptions right. to, and you can go and see how many copies that's actually sold. <laughs> Guess what? It wasn't 40,000 copies. You right. know, like maybe they printed 40,000, but they sold four of them. So all of a sudden, we have all of this data yeah. um, on writers, and it introduces this conversation about track. And that's like the word that we use. It's just like such a horrible, annoying word. Ooh, but the track, ooh, the track. And I think that's a major hindrance for mid-career, you know, middle of the road um, in terms of sales writers. And the reason I find it so tough is because just because you wrote a book that wasn't commercially super sellable doesn't mean your next one, you aren't going to happen upon an amazing idea. And we've seen this happen time and again, you know, writers who were like Dan Brown, he'd been writing for ages before he hit it big, like this happens. And I think that that's one of the sort of tricky things that we need to try and get past. I think it's easier for a debut writer now than it is for a midlife writer. no track writer. record. Like, I'm going to exactly. catch that lightning in the bottle here. Yeah. Yeah, we can yeah. just, like, dream up whatever we want. Oh, it'll sell a million copies. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. So if you get to the third, fourth, fifth book and the trajectory is not kind of going the right way, it's, that's that can be a, a sort of a barrier. Yeah, but, you know, there are things those writers can do to come back from it. One is... Um, to try and switch genres, you know, if they've been writing mysteries, try and write a historical. Or um, sometimes mm-hmm. they'll team up with another writer and do a book, you know, uh, um, as a pair. Or also sometimes people will pick a pen name and start writing a new kind of book under a pen name and create, a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a new reputation that way. So there's no dead ends, but... Yeah. I guess it always comes down to, can you find an editor who believes in the book, who believes in that particular manuscript and, yes. and gets behind it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a bit about how you interact with some of your writers. And we're going to get to your writing in a second, but I'm so interested in some of this stuff too. So you've had huge stars as writers that you've edited to discovering unknowns. Asking about the stars first, like take Emily St. John Mandel, who I think is one of the best out there. Her prose is crackling. There's wisdom in the sentences that's sort of woven in. You want to read them three or four times because they're so good. Yeah. Do you ever go to her and say, "But because you know, even the best can't land it every time. Yeah. Do you ever go to her and say, Emily, this passage here is really awful. You need to seriously rethink this. You know, Emily's funny because um, in, I don't know if you've ever um, seen her at an event or heard her speak. She is the most poised, purposeful Um, speaker and her writing arrives as polished as it is in the book Mm -hmm. but we do structural work and um, you know especially her last two novels have been structurally incredibly challenging um, on purpose you know she set out to mirror the structure of David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas with her new book Sea of Tranquility and that is a crazy structure it basically takes you um, forward in time to a peak and then back in time to where you started it's a bit of a brain teaser you know and um, and Emily is a genius, but even the smartest person in the world needs an editor to say, ooh, this loophole doesn't work. And also, honestly, the book was about simulation theory and time travel Mm -hmm. and super heady stuff. And so we ended up having some conversations where I felt like I haven't 
I felt like I was a college student who had just like eaten mushrooms for the first yeah. time and yeah. was like, what is reality? You know, like we really got like, we and, got and deep the copy it. editor in there, I mean, you're jumping centuries in that book. It's like, okay, well, this couldn't, you know, that must have been yes. an interesting thing. I would love to have read the first draft she handed in of that or even the first draft. Maybe she handed in her 10th draft. I don't know how she works, but an early draft compared to the final, you know, to see some of that structural change you guys came up with. I mean, and it wasn't that it was a heavy lift. It was just that there were certain – it was just that we had to learn the logic of the book, and then we had to make sure that that logic was applied in every mm-hmm. part of it, you know? And and the, so the book wouldn't be that drastically different, but there are – with a book like that, you're going to have readers out there, you know, the readers who love sci-fi, the readers who – love simulation theory, the readers who are really into this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you've done it wrong, they're not going to let it go. Oh, they'll be unforgiving. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they'll be ruthless about it. So we were like, we got to bulletproof this thing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. How about a sense of the undiscovered writer, or the unknown writer, where you discover a, ma- a manuscript that you know this could be a special novel? Can you give us a sense of that? that probably has happened somewhere along your career? Yeah, definitely. I mean... Even with Kevin Kwan, even with Crazy Rich Asians, Kevin had never published a book before, and he um, he'd been a designer. He'd um, he'd done design work for you know the MoMA and various other places. Uh, it was his first novel, and it was. It's not like I was the only one to be like, hey, this is fun. Like there were many bidders on it, but there were a lot of uncertainties. And, mm-hmm. you know, half the publishers he met with were like, great book, but we're not going to call it Crazy Rich Asians. Like that's not going to fly. And uh, and so we I mean, we had a really we had a really serious conversation about it. But ultimately, it felt like the right title for the book. Kevin felt confident. I trusted Kevin. So we went for it. But yeah, there was, you know, that was a little bit of a flyer and it sure worked out. I mean, that's it actually, you can't imagine another title for it. Were there any others in the running? No, no, never. And I think also the fact that um, a lot of us bid on that book and it ended up in a beauty contest, um, meaning that Kevin had to choose between identical offers from Mm -hmm. several publishers and the fact that I said, you can keep the title was that a deciding factor. Him. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard that expression for that, a, a beauty contest. Oh, it's so it's so awful. The beauty contests are just gutting because, it, you know, you're in a situation where the money is exactly the same. So literally yeah. the author is just saying, I want you as an editor or I want someone else more than you as an editor. It is like the publishing equivalent of The Bachelor. You're like, <laughs> do I get the rose? Oh, that's funny. I, uh, you know, I actually was on the writing side of one of those and um, – which is nice. I mean, it was, but I, 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 and I knew neither of the editors, but only one by reputation and someone I really trusted, um, Joe Cannon, who actually has done something similar to you. I mean, Joe was an executive. Do you know, you know, Joe Cannon? I know who he is. Yeah. yeah. He was an executive and, and wrote a great, in 1996, wrote a, a novel that had New York talking. So here, you know, 30 years later, you're doing what Joe did. But um, anyway, Joe recommended this editor and he and I had a, a long talk about it. It, was, it all worked out. Um, so forget these other writers. I want to talk about your writing. And before we get in the book, though, talk about your writing process, because you're holding down the day job. You've got two young kids. COVID's happening. Yeah. And you start writing this this book. And actually, this is a theme. When we talk about the book, I want to talk about working moms and non-working moms. So that's a yeah. really interesting thing that you tackle in the book. 
Um, but how? So it was like catch as catch can for you to find time to write this. How did that go? Yeah, it. W- I mean, I was possessed. It wasn't. It wasn't a choice to write this book. I wanted to write it so badly. I just. I. It was. It was haunting me. It was in my head. I was waking up at four thirty or five in the morning thinking about it. I have this really weird thing. I'd be curious to know if this happens to you too. But I'm very driven by the first line of a chapter and I take that first line as a jumping off point and if I don't have a good first line I'm just not going to write that day or I'm just going to be stuck but once I have the line I go and so it would happen to me a lot that I would be in that like bleary half awake state in the like you know dark hours in the morning and all of a sudden like a line and I'd be like, I got to get out of bed and write it, you know? And so I would jump out and start. And that line would just set me on a course. And so I would write for two hours until the kids were awake. I would throw them granola bars, turn on some cartoons, keep writing, and then eventually shuffle them off to – they were back in school, but I was working remotely. Um, I'd go for a run. And I find exercising for me is a great way to problem solve – um, and I, as an editor, I used to do that all the time. While I was running, I would figure out um, plot points in books. Mm-hmm. I would figure out like pitches or copy. But it, I came to think about um, like the action sequences while I was running, and then like a crazy person be yelling into the voice memos on my phone. I'm yelling like, at the school auction, they should steal a chair from a pregnant lady. And then like, you know, finish up my run, go home, write it down. Um, and then I had two different computers. And so I had my like um, MacBook that I wrote the book on and then I had my work laptop, my, you know, ThinkPad. And so, you know, at nine, one laptop goes in the drawer, the other one comes out on the desk, Mm -hmm. do my job all day. And then at five o'clock, the kids would come home, throw the kids in the bath, pull back out my gold laptop, Pour a big glass of wine and just sit on the closed toilet seat and write. Oh, I love with a glass of wine. With a glass nice. of wine. Normally, I'm hearing coffee. I've, I've asked the wine question a few times. There weren't a lot of yeses on that, but oh, I love that. It I, helps I, me. I, I've tried it, I, and I love your idea of like trusting that it some of it some happens in the background sometimes while you're running or you're in the shower. Like yes. things are working out back there. They are. I'm a huge fan of like physical movement to jar mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah, and your 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 question on the line. I do sometimes do that, but it's not always the first line of a chapter or the book. It can be out of sequence, or sometimes it's just a random line of dialogue, and I'll, I'm like, oh, that's a good line, and it, it sort of fits thematically in the, you know, sort of a conversation. We'll kind of build around that sometimes. But do you, um, do you do that like magpie thing where in life somebody says something so good or sparkly that you just like tuck it in a notebook and you're like, yeah, someday that's going in something. I have done that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Particularly on my first book, there were some just some terrific lines. Like, oh, because it was like my first book was set on Wall Street, and I'm friends with a lot of guys on Wall Street, and they'd say something <laughs> that was yeah. so sort of captured the the zeitgeistiness of that pre real estate crash of 08, just how those people lived, you know? Yeah. So, so it sounds like you were typing everything. You didn't you didn't write by hand. I typed sort everything. Of voice memos and typing. Yeah, and then um, and then when I needed to figure out the structure. I um I use notebooks and post-it notes and so I have like a dozen notebooks full of like lunatic uh scribbles like this needs to happen there she wouldn't know about this in that scene the problem with rotating POV so the story is told from mm-hmm. the perspective of these three sisters um they can only know 
you know, what they know in any given scene. And so when I would move things around, it would, you know, un- unravel, yeah. you know, other threats. Which, by the way, you did that beautifully because a series of events would happen from one POV. I'm like, wow, I can't believe this person did that. Like, that is really wrong. And I'd get to the next POV and hear that person's reaction. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm actually on her side now. Like, I get it why she did that. Yeah. You know, so I think that was really, really well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, especially, I think. In, when you're writing a family novel that is at its heart a domestic comedy, the conflict is less likely to come from like all-out screaming matches because they're family. They love each other. It's a lot more likely to come from misunderstanding, mm-hmm. and rotating POV gives you a great opportunity to expose misunderstanding. Yeah. Did you outline the book? No. I knew, I knew a few big things that were going to happen, um, and... You know, I did something that, like, TV writers will tell you never to do. I saved it. And TV writers are like, no, you never save the big thing. You put the big thing in the first scene. But um, I I won't spoil, but Georgiana has a massive crisis. And I knew I was writing towards that crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, But it comes, you know, more than halfway through the book. Yeah. How about editing? Did you edit as you go? Or did you just sort of like, I'm going to plow through this first draft sitting on the edge of your closed toilet seat while the kids yeah. are in the bath? And I'm like, <laughs> I got to get to the end first? Or would you? I do appreciate that we'll continue to use closed before the toilet seat. because it's just. <laughs> I, I like, wanted to make that point. Closed, closed. Um, <laughs> I would a little bit comb its hair as I went, you know, so I wasn't doing big mm-hmm. edits. But a lot of times when I sat back down, I wouldn't be really I wouldn't have finished at the end of a chapter, I would still have stuff to go. And also, I wanted to make sure that I like kind of immersed myself in the voice before jumping back because I wanted it to feel really consistent. So I would read, you know, a couple pages leading up to where I was, you know, my jumping off point, And I would tweak and fix and just like, make it a little better. And so I did have that thing, you know, you see this, I see this as an editor all the time where the beginning of the book is like so perfectly smoothed because the writer has been through it like a million times. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, it gets rough late in the book because they just haven't gone through and combed its hair quite so many times. Did you feel like you had to get in different mindsets at different times? You know, I'm, I'm in creation mode here, particularly as an editor yourself, you're often, I mean, you, you read tons of manuscripts and edit them. Did you have to change mindsets to get creating versus refining? I felt like, um, yes, the editing was a really different mindset. And then after I had edited it and I realized I needed to write another 15,000 words, it was very, very hard for me to get back into the voice that I had had before. I also felt like one of the weird, um, you know, like professional issues for me was that during my day job, I was reading so much from other writers and I was reading great stuff from other writers. And in the same way, you know, if you if you go on vacation to London, you like once in a while come back and say lift because it just sounded cool, you know. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, when I'm reading a lot of another writer who I admire, it's hard not to accidentally absorb a little bit of their voice because yeah. they sound great. And so when I was editing, you know, a wilderness thriller, I would sit back down and I'm like, OK, they're like, do not start writing about how beautiful the coat of a wolf is here. That is not <laughs> what's happening in Brooklyn Heights, you know. So that was a little bit of a challenge for me was like I almost needed to like, you know, mouthwash my brain a little bit between the reading and going back to my own book. That's interesting. I, I do hear that from, as I'm sure you do as well, from friends that 
someone's just on saying they they run from anything that's close to the fiction they're writing. I, I you know, they'll have to read nonfiction from some faraway period. You know, I like reading. I like reading stuff that's close. Actually, I feel like I I sometimes felt like I was in a fun ongoing conversation with the writers who were close to what I was doing. But I've heard, um, especially thriller writers and mystery writers, cannot read thrillers and mysteries while they're working because mm-hmm. it becomes like there are only so many. There are only so many like strings you can pull yeah Yeah, exactly and they if they came across someone who stole their idea they would be like devastated by it you know (laughs) so for those writers i think it's like yeah they have to put up a wall stay in their lane um so with pineapple street i have a copy here and i would love for you to sign this before you go um one of my favorite characters in the book and it it wasn't one of your prime I, i loved them all but one that just jumped out at me is probably the most amusing was the mother of the Stockton family who reminded me of the mother in Pride and Prejudice. You know, oh, who's I like, love that. Seems a little clueless, but it's actually not clueless at all. It's just like her ability to kind of breeze right past anything she doesn't want to know about. And yes. she's focused mainly on her social standing and the social standing of her children. Yes. And as a result, with this sort of laser focus, is actually quite effective. Yes. She really is. Um, there's like that Roz Chast cover that says can we talk about something more pleasant? And I think that's like a huge, I mean, that was very much the way that, um, that the dynamic was in my family with my mom, with my grandmother, like don't dwell on unpleasant things. Like talk about positive things. People don't want to be around you if you're talking about negative things, you know, and Mm -hmm. Tilda is for sure that way. She also is um, of a different generation. And I think it's funny because uh, I think she is, of such an elite kind of social status that it's almost made her like older than her age, you know, like she wasn't a hippie in the way that a lot of people of her generation were hippies. She was, Mm -hmm. that wasn't her set, you know, so she's just very traditional and her expectations for her children are kind of out of touch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this reminds me of a conversation I had with, with a, a woman from the South whose mother's advice to her was, just learn how to play a little tennis, learn how to ski, and watch your figure. And you're all set. Like, I those love are her it. three <laughs> missions in life, and you'd be all set. <laughs> Did it work out? She's <laughs> doing fine. Yeah, I guess it worked. <laughs> um, one of the things that inspired the book for you, I, I think, was that I read. So tell me if it's true or not, but that you read some articles that said that the inheritance of this sort of coming generation will be the largest wealth transfer in history. And that was one of the themes that sort of brought you to the book. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, it's an article by Zoe Beery in the New York Times called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism. And so it's about these millennial um, heirs who find that their inheritance is at odds with their values. And I've been fascinated to see the way that very rapidly our attitudes towards money and especially generational wealth are changing on a micro generation level. So I'm um I'm an elder millennial. I'm on the edge of Gen X and millennial and my attitude towards money is well was always pretty simple. Like I thought it seemed awesome. And then when I talked to, you know, I spent the whole pandemic um with my 25-year-old assistant. I rented a WeWork cuz our offices were closed and I had to like get out of my house and I invited her to come and sit with me and we worked side by side and we ate a lot of sweet green salad and we (laughs) talked a lot and we talked about, 
you know, all the awkward life stuff. And I realized her attitude about money is really, really different than mine, that her generation has a lot of shame associated with money, a lot of the sense that um, that income inequality is the greatest problem facing America right now. And they're and it's they don't think money is cool. Money is awesome. They think money is problematic. And if you have a lot of it, you might be a bad person. And and so that just inspired me to think, okay, what happens if you're in this family and you have two siblings who are my age and who have a pretty unexamined relationship with money? And, you know, sometimes they think, well, money makes my friendships complicated or oh, money means I can't leave this job or whatever. But that's kind of the extent of it. Whereas the youngest sibling has um, um, sort of an altercation with a friend where she comes to feel really ashamed of her money and then comes to realize that she has been very coddled and very spoiled and she wonders if her money has actually made her a worse person. Mm-hmm. I, I love that you tackle this because I, I know people who are, I mean, these are real conversations happening in households all over the country. Your, your assistant and I have friends, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a bit older than you and um, I have friends whose kids are in college and they're coming back and they're having these exact conversations that yeah. you play out in this book so well. Like it really feels like it's it's echoing things that I'm hearing in real life, but you examine it in a way that it like I really learned something here. Like I can go talk to my friends and say, read this book. It's actually going to sort of open your eyes to some of this, as you say, micro generational. Like it didn't happen over thirty years to the next thirty years. It's like happening kind of year to year. Right now, yeah. I mean, I think that there's there have been these big conversations about like, well, Bill Gates is going to give his kids ten million dollars each, uh, and that's it. But that's still a crazy amount of money. And your, you know, your life. Warren Buffett talks about how your life shouldn't be dictated by your membership to the Lucky Sperm Club. Also mm-hmm. true. Right. But then I think one of the things that's been a joy for me about this book is that. Um, I started sharing early copies with friends, and I have had some of the most honest and vulnerable and interesting conversations about money with my friends. And these are not friends who have great inheritances. These are not friends with trust funds. These are friends talking about, you know, my parents died and they left the house to us three kids, and two of us can afford to make the mortgage payments, but the other one can't, and what do we do? Or, you know, my grandmother promised this ring to my brother, but I don't think he's going to get married, so is it okay if I ask for it? Like, mm-hmm. families and money, wherever you fall on the spectrum, it's like a big, messy taboo that people have a really, really hard time talking about. Yeah. It, and it's one we can't, I mean, it's an age old thing in some ways, but it, it is like somehow more on the front page these days with, as you say, the Bill Gates comments and and the crazy wealth accumulated at the very sort of very top of, it's almost not the 1%, it's the point one of the one, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, my husband grew up here um, in Manhattan and he talks about how when he was in school, the the parents of his classmates, the, the rich kids, their parents were doctors. And now if you look at, you know, those schools, like the doctors are, yeah, are that's, barely that's paying the class. tuition. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the hedge funders. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you, you say that. I mean, I, I, I Doctor making four or five hundred thousand dollars in New York City is, you know, they're check to check basically. I know it's insane. <laughs> it's what is this world? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Can you talk about, speaking of incomes and maybe double incomes or not, can you talk about the working mom piece? So you are yeah. obviously a, a hardworking mom. You've yeah. got a couple jobs now. Yeah. And there were some interesting passages in the book where, you know, women, I mean, there's no getting around carrying the baby and and maybe a second baby only months after the first one is born and, uh, you're, you know, you're pregnant again. And it's tough to hold down the job at Goldman Sachs or, or whatever it is. And so really hard decisions have to be made. And then, you know, you sort of live with those decisions and, and kind of get in that routine. And I thought you captured that well in a couple of conversations in the in the book. Can you, so talk about your own experience, I guess, with it and as well as the book. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think I've been lucky in that I work in book publishing where there are a lot of women. And so you would think that it would have been – easier for me than it was for most. And maybe it was easier for me than it was for most, but it was still really hard. It was hard to go back to work with, you know, a three-month-old. I wanted to, I wanted her to continue to have breast milk. And so you had to like have appointments in the nurse's office to go down. And if you got stuck on a call and you missed your appointment, then like you were just going to be uncomfortable for the rest of the day and not mm. able to, to pump. I mean, and it was like, this is, forgive me if this is an overshare, but I think it's a super funny story. So there is this other editor. Um, she and I were friends. We worked for two different groups. So we were competitive. She was working for the Crown Group and I was working for the Knopf Group. And um, we, we went head to head a lot of times trying to pursue the same projects. We both came back from maternity leave around the same time and we were both on the schedule for um, for using the nurse's room to pump. And so I had in this hot manuscript, I really, really wanted to put a bid down on it. Like time was of the essence, but I had to get my pump window because if I didn't run down there and just get like, you know, 15 minutes to myself, my whole day was going to be ruined. So I dashed down there and like the door is locked. And I'm like, oh my God, what somebody else is like, in my spot. And so I'm waiting there, waiting there, waiting there. 15 minutes later, she comes out. It's it's my friend. And I'm like, hey. She's like, oh, sorry, like crazy day. I'm like, no worries. We've all been there. So I go in. I take my 15 minutes, run upstairs, throw my cooler in the fridge, jump back on my computer. And the agent has written and she says, I'm so sorry, but I have accepted a preempt from Alexis at the Crown Group. So the book is no longer up for up for option. Oh, my gosh. She had stolen stolen my pumping appointment and then she stole my book <laughs> that and and you're sort of probably underrested like you're in no condition to get you know totally double hits of bad totally. news totally i just felt like oh my god i cannot win and of course you know like i do some traveling for work so there were you know the times of like having to leave a you know a book event mid session and run and like store some milk in like a cooler behind a mm-hmm. hotel desk i mean it's just the world is not it's not designed for a working mom it's, like we're trying really but we're not, not there it's so so not an overshare at all in fact i'm right there with you and my wife went back to work after you know, all of our, our babies, I don't know, around 12 weeks or something like that. And, um, but wanted to keep doing the breast milk thing for like a year for each of them. And I have to say, it's like, <laughs> I was in there, I'm like, honey, this is like so bovine. I mean, the, the pump is kind of loud and yes. makes like the, the sort of repeated, almost like sounds like a moo, yes. you know, <laughs> yes. it just goes on. And it's like, so she's doing it in the office 
But from inside our office, you could hear it out in the hallway. So oh people gosh. would walk by. They're like, what is that crazy noise? It's right. like driving me insane. And it's like, it's her <laughs> breast milk pump. Mom, mom, mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I would, yeah. Do, I would try and multitask because I'm not going to sit there. I can't waste like, you know, if you do 20 minutes a day, three times a day, I'm not going to waste an hour of my work day. So I was multitasking. So I'd be on a call and somebody on the conference call would be like, does anybody hear? Is there, do we have a bad connection? I'd be like... Nope, not on my end. I'm like, oh my God, it's totally the pump, whatever. (laughs) Well, Pineapple Street is awesome for, I mean, you'd have to be under a rock not to have heard about this book at this point. It had a huge feature in the New York Times. And uh, not only has there been excitement around the the actual hardcover coming out, but you sold the rights for this. The, The book to film rights sold, I don't know how long ago, but long before publication, which happens with great books, doesn't always happen with books, but with really good ones, it does. So can you update us a bit on book to film progress? Yeah, it's been so much fun. And so I I had a couple different um, different production companies that were interested in it. I took calls with all of them. And there's this group, Picture Start. And I just had the best meeting with them. They got the book. They loved the book. They understood what it was. And so, um, so I went with them. And then like, they had like some staff changeover and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? But literally everybody there has been amazing to work with. And then they hired this writer and her name is uh, Sarah Watson and she is the writer of The Bold Type and then also a writer on that show Parenthood. I don't Mm -hmm. know if people remember Parenthood, but one of the magical things about Parenthood is that it's a family story that is episodic and every 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 episode ends with kind of a little hook. And that's very much the right vibe for Pineapple Street because Pineapple Street, yes, there is like a big thing that happens in the middle of it, but this is not a book where there's like a murder. It's not a whodunit. It's not like, you know, a, a, a thief came and ransacked the house or something. And so she understood very instinctively that the storytelling needed to be focused on the family and on just like the small interpersonal developments that keep the story going. There are a number of fascinating, I mean, I know there's the big one you're talking about, but there are a number of reveals in there where all of a sudden it shifts. You're like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't Yes, people get fired. People have mean nicknames for each other. People discover betrayals. Um, Or someone has an epiphany about somebody else. Like, oh, I see them mm -hmm, differently. And And, and so she uh, she wrote a, a pitch she wrote a pilot and then um a famous actress who i unfortunately can't say has attached herself to play sasha which i'm super excited about and so this week they've been doing meetings with streamers to try and figure out who we're going to partner with on it so it's all moving in the right direction it's really exciting to know who the actress is now can you give us a hint like is she blonde brunette does she, does, she, does she have a superhero character in her resume? Oh gosh, I really, I really don't want to get in trouble. So <laughs> all right, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm going to say she's super talented and attractive, but that's okay, all I got. <laughs> good. Um, what? So I want to uh, get into the lightning round, but before I do, I want to ask the question that probably has Bo Jalian and Saint John Mendel and Kevin Kwan all biting their fingernails. I'm sure there's another book, but what does it mean for the balance in your career, and w- what's next for you? I mean, I just. I'm so happy right now. I feel so lucky because I get to do two of the things that I love the most. I I have my friends laugh at me. I've had the same job, literally the same job for 20 years. And anybody who who has talked to me is like, oh, Jenny loves her job, you know? And Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm allowed to 
in the middle of my life in my 40s have this other adventure and try something new without having to give up the thing that I love is such a gift. You know, my team at Knopf has been so supportive and amazing. So I see no need to change a single thing, you know? Great. Great. Now, you you pulled it off with this one, managing with two young kids. That's only going to get easier from here yeah, as well, kids, mean, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, they're pretty messed up, so we'll see. About <laughs> <laughs> They'll never recover from this. No, sorry, no, guys. That's... All right, so on to the lightning round. And you're going to have great answers for these book ones, knowing mm, what a what so. a family of readers you come from. But favorite book as a kid? Hatchet, Gary Paulson. It's um, a boy, a young 13-year-old boy, is in an airplane crash in the Canadian wilderness, and he has to survive all on his own. And I just put two and two together that basically it was like the OG Yellow Jackets. I don't know either of these books. Okay, ha- Yellow so Jackets. Is, Yellow Jackets is a TV show about a soccer team with an airplane that goes down in the woods. Okay, but kind of like like a YA version of Alive. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. And so that was what Hatchet was. Okay, well, I'm going to get I my mean, kids. What what age oh. would that be for? Yeah, a 13 year old. Okay, I'm going to get that for our kids. Uh, Let's see. Family favorite from the dinner table. Is there is there one book that kind of united the family and everyone said this is? We did a lot of Chronicles of Narnia. So we did mm-hmm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it meant that for an embarrassingly long swath of my life, my brother and I were constantly going into the back of closets and being like, anybody in here? Any chance it's a magical world? <laughs> nope. Sorry. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love the image of that. All right, book or books you're reading? I, I know you're on book tour and you're heading to London and you've got exciting stuff happening, but book you're reading now, if there is one, given yeah. all the craziness. So I just finished Really Good Actually by Monica Heisey, which is a really hilarious, messed up comedy about divorce. And then um, I started another kind of wonderfully weird book called Big Swiss by Jen Beacon. And it's about this woman who is the transcriptionist for a sex therapist. So it's wonderfully bonkers and I, i'm just enjoying visiting her mind oh, big swiss yeah I got that one too all right now i know it's it's early in your first book tour but one of the questions i asked and i know you've, you've listened to a few episodes is sort of the the kind of the least attended book event but what's the strangest thing that's happened or craziest thing that's happened on your book tour so far We had a really, really fun event with Book of the Month Club, and they put me on stage and made me play this game called uh, Prenup or Breakup. And so they – because, you know, the prenup does play a role in Pineapple Street. And so they would ask me questions and say, if this was part of your prenup, would you sign it or would you break up? And they were things like you were each allowed to throw away one piece of the other person's artwork, like – Do you sign that or do you break up? Or the one that I absolutely was like break up on is for the rest of your whole entire life, you have to read every single email your spouse writes before he sends it. Like (laughs) absolute breakup, absolute breakup on that one. That is a fun game. That should be a show. (laughs) Speaking of streaming content, we should come up with that. That's great. It's like a new newlywed game. Literary influences, top top literary influences for you. Laurie Colwyn, who was this amazing, amazing, funny, funny writer in the 80s and 90s. And then I love Meg Wolitzer. I love mm. Curtis Sittenfeld. I love Jennifer Close. I love Catherine Heine. And then there's this British writer people have to read. Her name is Meg Mason, and her book is Sorrow and Bliss. And it is what I like to call the chocolate pretzel of a book in that it is sweet and salty and you laugh and cry. 
And it's got that delicious pretzely taste. Exactly. <laughs> Tastes good with the Casamigos and soda. Yeah. Oh, what, I mean, what doesn't? <laughs> what doesn't? Meg Mason. Okay, I've, I've got that down, too. Favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Okay, well, I'm going to recommend Yellow Jackets because <laughs> I think that everybody should watch it. It's really, really dark, but it's good. And then also dark, but so funny. I'm a Sharon Horgan super fan. You know, I loved Catastrophe, but she has this show, Bad Sisters, and Bono's daughter is actually one of the actresses in it. I loved it. I loved every episode, and I think I might just watch it a second time. I will have to get to that. You're the second person to recommend that. I think Anna Quinlan recommended that one, and I haven't gotten into it yet, so I will. Last question for Jenny Jackson. One piece of good advice. I'm going to double down on voice memos because you always think you're going to remember something later and then you forget it. And in the moment it occurs to you, just yell it in your phone. Like, I don't care if you're in the grocery store. I don't care if you're like the parent teacher conference. Just be like, excuse me, one moment, Ms. Garcia. They should totally get drunk at the baby shower. Anyway, as you were saying, like you should just make a voice memo whenever you think of anything for your book. Oh, that's true. It's just, it's vapor. For me in particular, like five minutes later, it's gone and I, I don't get it. Yes. Jenny, that was so fun. Thank you so much for coming in. Pineapple Street is awesome. Thank you. It was great to meet you. I know I'm not supposed to say it's meet you. It should be see you, oh, but yeah, we you are got meeting. That from the book. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great to meet you. I'll say Thank it anyway. You. I'm fearless. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.